1: You're listening to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Baron Levesque. On today's podcast, I'm thrilled to be talking with Dr. Lana D. Pavitz. Lana is visiting assistant professor of history at Middlebury College. Her first book, Stirrings, How Activist New Yorkers Ignited a Movement for Food Justice, was just published in fall 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press. Her research and teaching focus on U.S. social movements and grassroots politics, women and gender, oral history, and food politics. Along with Stephen High, she is co-editor of a special forthcoming issue of Social History on Activist Lives. She re- received her PhD in U.S. History from New York University in 2016, but originally hails from Montreal. Welcome to the show, Dr. Povitz.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much.
1: <laughs> so everyone has their own approach to eating up a new book. And for me, I often get hung up on titles and thinking about the process behind naming a labor of love such as a first book like this one, would you tell us the origin story of your title, Stirrings, and what significance it holds for you?
0: Yeah, sure. I love this question. So this book grew out of a dissertation, which was called Movement Stirrings, which, like, there was just a lot wrong with that in a few ways, but I didn't know how to fix it. I was really committed to keeping in stirrings um, because a lot of the book although it is mostly about it's about food activism it's also a history of emotion and it looks at the way that how people felt about their time in social movements shapes the things they're able to do and how long they're able to stay involved in in progressive activism and things like that and it it really just argues for the centrality of emotion uh and relationships so stirrings evoke that and it was also a food double entendre that wasn't going to be annoying as you probably (laughs) know the the world of Food books is just full of cheesy uh, things like that. And so I was having dinner one one evening with my friend, the poet Julie Bruck in San Francisco, and I was telling her about my book and what it was called. And she said, movement, stirring. Ugh. How about just stirrings? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, that's got to be the title. So that was that was easy. And, and then the subtitle was uh, suggested by my wonderful UNC Press editor, Brandon uh, Proya. And I thought, that's, a, that's bold, but I like it. Uh, and I think the other thing about Stirrings that's kind of, I don't think I intended this, but it's true, is that a lot of the, what the book does, it blends together all these different social movements that seemingly don't have things to do with each other. But food kind of becomes this unifying uh, theme, I guess, it brings together the community control movement and AIDS activism and the New Left. And, you know, anti-poverty politics, it's kind of stirred together, if you'll permit me. <laughs> I book. will. Okay.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it takes, I love that it takes a village, more or less, to name such a labor of love. <laughs> um, I'm, so I'm also pretty obsessed when I'm consuming a book with first sentences. And yours is this, quote, the complex flavors in a fine wine or cheese unfold from a certain dynamic engagement between people, time and place, a connection forged between the natural and built environment and the knowledge of human producers. You then go on to explain that, quote, the French word for this concept is terroir. Though difficult to translate precisely, it's used to express an economy rooted in rather than imposed on a landscape and with the implication that all economies are the result of temporal, geographical, and social interplay. And I love that. So can you tell us more about how you're using terroir as a dynamic framework for understanding the ecologies and the entanglements of activist New Yorkers who were using food as an organizing tool in the last three decades of the 20th century?
0: You know, sometimes I think that terroir actually expresses what historians are always doing. You know, not just when it comes to food, although that's convenient uh, that it arises from the sort of culinary world. But I mean, the, the whole point of history is to engage with the real specificities uh, that, that shape a question, a historical question. So it's not just that I'm looking at, you know, food activism in New York. Really, it's particular neighborhoods, particular moments in time and particular people. And all those particulars make a big difference uh, to what the story ends up being. So in this book, I focus on four nonprofit organizations, all very different. One is a group of um, mostly Puerto Rican immigrant parents, mothers in particular, who are organizing during the war on poverty years. So the 1960s around education issues and increasingly uh, access to food. This was a very they were coming from the South Bronx, which is very poor, the poorest congressional district in the country at that time and perhaps still. and sort of engaging with the state in particular ways and making demands uh, that a lot of people in the 60s were making. So the kind of terroir of um, sort of social movement energy coming from the welfare rights movement, the civil rights movement, you know, the community control of schools movement, which was very big in New York. That's kind of one area that I look at. Then I look at the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is a very large uh, consumer co-op based in Park Slope, Brooklyn, that was actually organized In 1973, by 10 white sort of upper middle class or upwardly mobile, um, mostly Jewish, actually, uh, young people who had been very involved in the Vietnam War movement. And so the kind of terroir there is like young white people moving to a gentrifying neighborhood um, in search of great, you know, wholesome, whole food that's ecologically sound and drawing on their experience uh, as anti-war organizers. And as they also were very supportive of the farm workers who had been striking. So they had a certain kind of political experience of their own. Uh, And that's that's quite quite different from the United Bronx parents, the first group. And then the third group is is um, very different territory and politics uh, surrounding a group called God's Love We Deliver, which was a home meal delivery service for people who were dying of AIDS founded in 1985 or 86 um that kind of brought in a lot of energy from other aids activism already taking place and just the kind of landscape of real social abandonment you know on the part of the state and most institutions so that people who wanted to do something for people with aids people who were suffering it was a lot of just kind of ordinary concerned people who banded together to do what needed to be done and as kind of volunteers uh and that you know New York City was the hardest hit by aids of all cities And it was a very sort of fertile environment for an organization like this to take off. And then finally, I look at another group called Community Food Resource Center, which was founded in 1980, uh, sort of in response to Ronald Reagan's election and the kind of just gutting of the social safety net that took place over the 80s and 90s. And that organization is sort of more like the nonprofits we know today. It's very... um, it provided ended up providing a lot of direct services to people who were really in need, and it also did a lot of advocacy work to kind of bring stronger food and anti-poverty programs to New Yorkers. And that you know it was mostly women, quite a kind of horizontal, almost anarchist um, organization that did a lot of coalition work. It did many different kinds of projects. That you know, again, the fact that this was taking place in the eighties and nineties when homelessness and You know, AIDS and gentrification was really starting to devastate New Yorkers. That also played a role in how people saw the goals of what they were doing. So, you know, I guess I guess terroir is at its best to help us understand that the things that were possible at a certain moment uh, owe a lot to what else was going on, to who was in political power, what was happening locally, and then, of course, the individuals who are running things, which is kind of another like, another thing we can talk about, I guess, after.
1: Right. Wow. Really well said. That's a lot. <laughs> oh, I, I was into it. So you're kind of getting at this, but Stirrings has a real flesh and bones embodied feel to it, and you did extensive oral histories with quite a cast of activist women, um, nurturing what really feels like a living archive. So can you give us an overview of some of the primary folks you talked with and their coordinates within the larger activist landscapes of New York City?
0: Yes. Well, I did interview 43 people for this project. And some, most of them were kind of one-off interviews. So we spoke for a couple of hours once. Um, But then in some cases, I got to know um, my narrators over weeks, or in some cases, months, and one case, even years. Um, So I guess the most important person i could talk about is a woman named kathy goldman who kind of in a way structures the book she began her work as a food activist with the united bronx parents although she was not she was at that point had moved out of the bronx although she'd grown up in that neighborhood so it was a white jewish woman whose parents had been communists and who herself had been involved in communist youth work uh and she sort of began in the 60s working around education stuff and then saw how important was how important food was to people and that kind of became her life's work just making trying to make sure that people had access to you know quality food and so she's in the first two chapters of the book and she's in the last two chapters because she also goes on to fa- to be the founder of community food resource center so we had a lot to talk about and she you know, and in a lot of ways just brought the story to life for me because we, she really gave me a lot of time and she really was able to fill in the kind of texture of what it meant to organize around food for all of those years in so many different contexts. I mean, New York city in the sixties was a very different place than it became, uh, by the end of the 20th century and, and now today. So she was very generous. She really, you know, as, as oral historians find, um, often like linked me to a lot of other people who I spoke to um, and was very sort of self-aware and kind of interested in a lot of the same questions I was about how is it possible to organize over a lifetime. And, you know, we would have a real discussion. It wasn't just like she was giving me information. I would ask her questions and we would argue and we would pontificate together. And it was a very rich process. Uh, And I think that a lot of the whatever life the book has comes out of those kinds of conversations with people. Another person who uh, was very important to the story and who, um, whose oral histories were incredibly rich was Ganga Stone. She is one of the co-founders and sort of the the executive director, the first executive director of God's Love We Deliver. And she interestingly doesn't see herself as an activist at all and, and had no desire Um, for this project of hers, to be considered an activist project. She had been a devotee of an Indian guru in the Siddha Yoga tradition. And her guru had, Swami Muktananda was his name, um, told her that her life's work was to tend to the dying. So when she came back to India, to New York, she was looking around for the most kind of desperate situation in the 80s. And, you know, it was People with AIDS, people with nothing was being done. So her mission kind of was to um, be of service, was to, to be of service in the most immediate and direct way possible to people who were really sick and suffering. So she's not interested. And she expressed this very clearly and colorfully in our interviews, not interested in all at all in, in sort of getting to the causes of aids or you know petitioning the government for anything she was really just excited about helping ordinary people to be of service so our conversations about that were very rich because of course I'm always wanting to address the root causes and do believe that the state should play an active role in caring for its neediest citizens or people who live within its territory and so we had some very principled good disagreements also in those oral histories and she just is very chatty and very charismatic and just sort of wonderful to talk to um, you know one of these people where you speak to them for hours and it feels like 10 minutes so that she would be another one i mean i could really go on but i think those are the sort of two most important i will say that there was another woman in this book who was extremely important because she was a mentor to a lot of activists including Kathy Goldman. A Puerto Rican woman named Evelina Antonetti, uh, but unfortunately she died in 1984. So I was never able to interview her. I did interview her daughter, Lorraine Montenegro, who unfortunately also since has passed. But I I did think a lot about the way the story was skewed by people who just survived. You, you know, not that anybody distorted anything, but just there's a lot of perspectives missing, and that's often people who frankly, were people of color, people who spent a lot of their lives in poverty um, and who just didn't necessarily receive the kinds of care, uh, health care that they, they needed. I mean, Evelyn Antonetti died very prematurely, but, um, and that shouldn't have happened. So, you know, who's at the table? Who's available to talk? These are important questions.
1: So I'd love to talk more about the movement strategies you focus on in the book. How is your discussion of food provisioning a pushback against dominant narratives in social movement history that prioritize certain forms of protest, like mass organizing and wildcat direct action, for example, over others?
0: Mm, well, I think there's a few questions in there. I think that the, the thing about movement strategies, if there's anything that emerges as a strategy, is that people can really use food uh, to interest people in all sorts of issues that are not on the surface as interesting, you know, for example, um, this is, this is actually a good example. So the women of United Bronx parents who ran it would have different meetings to bring parents in to discuss issues. And so when they would have a, when they would hold a meeting about reading scores, you know, maybe 10 parents would come, but if the meeting was about school food, reportedly hundreds of parents came. So you know food worked to bring people in um it was an area of comfort zone particularly for, a comfort zone for women who felt like they would be accorded automatically some authority and respect because historically feeding people has been women's work um it's been a way to bring in uh financial and human resources even you know bringing in those who have a lot of money who, who maybe haven't personally been hungry, but who know how important it is to eat three times a day and who could then empathize with the idea that somebody would be, let's say, starving to death in their apartment. Um, you know, food is is just often a way of bringing people together. I think that there's something also about the sort of tangible material dailiness of food that in a certain way gets lost. I mean, some of the people I write, I wrote about, did do some pretty traditional forms of of protests, like, you know, big organizations organizing demos and, you know, public actions that would draw media attention and things like that. But for the most part, just the sort of daily act of providing food can can fall off the radar. I also think that um, food provisioning in the context of austerity, that is a moment when the federal, state, and local governments are really scaling back um, the social safety net, that under austerity, actually working at advocacy, uh, in other words, advocating the government not to cut food stamps, not to cut welfare, not to um, reduce the standards of the lunch program so that ketchup counts as a vegetable, that kind of work is very unsexy. It's not like the Black Panthers free breakfast program, you know, when the Panthers would bring, would find ways of feeding thousands and thousands of kids in poor neighborhoods and also kind of sharing with them their political vision. This is not like that. Nobody's holding guns. You know, it, it's very much like over decades, a group of sort of doggedly determined, usually women women trying to get people in power to be a little bit more responsible to the people they purport to serve. So there's a lot of that happening. Um and there's a lot of reasons why that's fallen under the radar. I think one reason, I mean partly it's sexism, I think women's work is just not as often not treated as seriously, but I think it's also that the successes have been harder to see in some ways because of the kind of neoliberal trends toward putting um, responsibility on individual people and sort of cutting away our ideas of what the public should mean. But, you know, keeping programs from being entirely gutted took decades. And it means that today we still have these programs. But, you know, you, you might sometimes wish that more had come from more more sort of visible victories could have come from their work um this is a sort of disjointed answer but there are a lot of different ways that um there are a lot of different strategies that are advanced by people in this book and they're not coordinated right i'm looking at four different case studies so they're they're just all these different ways kind of of approaching food exactly
1: So you argue that historians of 20th century American social movements have insufficiently examined the charisma of women and that there are examples of charismatic leadership that were about trust and building relationships and building power and creating the conditions um, for folks to seize the means and succeed. So the movements you discuss in your words were, quote, leaderful. Can you tell us a little bit more about this?
0: Sure. And leaderful is definitely a word. I'm sure you know this, that's in circulation a lot in movements today. Um, I think that uh, historians of the 20th century have rightfully pushed back against these kinds of narratives of great men, these great charismatic men. So the Martin Luther King's, the John F. Kennedy's, the Barack Obama's even. And, you know, whenever I give a talk about this, I ask people in the audience to name someone who they think of as charismatic and it's always men. Yet there are plenty of charismatic women. I think that the way I shifted that was by redefining charisma so that it doesn't only mean sort of standing up on a stage and making strong impressions on followers, but also the kind of one-to-one charisma of somebody who's making you see yourself differently making you see political possibilities that weren't there for you before feeling like it's basically mentorship. It's basically a certain kind. And I say that it's women's charismatic leadership just because you see this so often women, but it's the kind of leader who builds power because of their ability to connect to those who they want to inspire, whether that's volunteers or their employees or potential donors or board members. I mean, we're looking at this in a context of nonprofits, but it's just this idea that having charismatic leadership doesn't preclude the building of leadership in others. And actually, the more leaders you can build, the more you can nurture people's sense of their political power, the stronger one, that, the stronger that person becomes as a leader. And I saw this particularly in the case of Kathy Goldman and Community Food Resource Center. I both heard her stories of being mentored by people like Evelina Antonetti and Ellen Lurie, another great grassroots organizer from New York. And also then heard people who worked for her. And I got to hear stories of people kind of learning from her the way she had learned from her mentors. And just that rich lineage of sort of producing people who are, who have visions to lead was just really wonderful to see. And of course, for those of us who are also active within social movements, uh, we feel that work on ourselves all the time. Like we know what it feels like to work with people who believe in us, who inspire us, who empower us. Uh, and we know that we endow those people with a lot of, I think for good reason, sort of social power within organizations or within movements. I think that's just how it works.
1: You offer an alternative history of nonprofits, challenging the idea of nonprofits um, as where radical organizing, and grassroots activism goes to die So instead, you powerfully illustrate that this wasn't always the case um, and it doesn't have to be the case in our contemporary moment. In other words, you're giving folks like me models of institutionalized activism that don't have to be super hierarchical or brand driven and devoid of political will. So could you tell us what led you to this revision and how the advocates and organizers you showcase created space for transformational politics like this?
0: Yes. I don't know that they always saw that they were creating space for transformational politics, but I think that that's what ended up happening. And I think that the key to this is just understanding that nonprofits evolved. Um, the, the, the nonprofits that evolved out of the kind of early days of President Reagan and Bush and Clinton are very different than the kinds of nonprofits we have now. So a lot of the weariness with nonprofits has to do with the idea that um, boards and executive directors will cater to what funders want to do and not so much to the base or the kind of intended initial um target audience that um a lot of money will be invested into kind of infrastructure and a lot of and and not so much on the, the needs of the most needy people uh and there is just kind of like very often very hierarchical very brand conscious uh, way that most nonprofits work now, but in the 80s and 90s, al- when they were sort of first doing this, it, there was really not a set model. There were not people who could train. There were not hundreds of thousands of people who could train you in how to run a nonprofit the way there is a whole sort of cr- uh, cottage industry now. There were some people who could advise nonprofit leaders, but not nothing like on the scale we have now. But the reason we have them is because so many people all of a sudden needed services. So An example I like to give that I think helps understand why they evolved is that in 1980, New York City had a total of 30 emergency food providers. Ten years later, there were 600. And by 1997, there were nearly a thousand food pantries and soup kitchens scattered across New York, many of which were nonprofits. I would say either they were sort of running out of the basements of churches or they were kind of more standalone nonprofit structures. But these evolved because unemployment is high, rent, cost of living is skyrocketing, uh, welfare is being cut, food stamps are being cut, everything is being scaled back. So somebody needs to step in. Um, And a lot of the people who founded nonprofits were people, often women, who had been active in kind of left progressive organizing before and kind of did this because they felt like nothing is being done. We can't just sit by and watch you know, hundreds and hundreds of people loop this city block waiting for a hot meal. We need to do more. So I think that the early nonprofits kind of evolved out of necessity and felt like they were going to try to put themselves out of business. They hoped, well, we'll start this emergency kitchen, and hopefully in a few years uh, it can close. Of course, that didn't happen. And I think one of the sad ironies is, is that these nonprofit providers often did such a good job that it kind of inadvertently affirmed the uh, conservative agenda, which was that the private sector can do it better. And that's one of the things that I've never really been able to fully refute. I mean, I think that a lot of good ideas do come out of the private sector and do require kind of the independent maneuvering that's not possible when you're doing something um you know, across a city of many millions of people or an entire country. So that was, that was interesting to think about. I, I I do think that um, what made these organizations successful was a lot to do with their internal culture. So the, the strength of people's relationships and the desire that people had to work together. So the Park Slope Food Co-op would not have been able to survive if, members were just constantly tearing each other apart or if they didn't feel a commitment to working together similarly those trying to fight uh for you know fight against poverty in New York under a mayor like Rudy Giuliani really needed to have their their affairs together internally to be able to have a kind of shared set of values that they could work around and the importance of shared values i think really can't be Overstated because the left is constantly fighting with itself and it wastes a lot of time that way. So, a group that really knows what it's trying to do uh, can go a lot farther.
1: Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Uh, the primary mission of New Books Network is free public education, more or less. So, so this is also something that aligns with some of the work I do, running a community te- te- teaching kitchen. And so, I'm always trying to serve many kinds of literacies and invest and invite a diverse lot of learners into the public discourse around food justice in the U.S. Um, for example, we'll probably be listening to this interview in a few weeks since. I want to shout out to the Cornbread Academy in
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, So what role does accessibility in creating a translatable, usable past play in your writing and your research and your teaching?
0: Well, I love history because it's just a collection of, I mean, it's not just a collection of stories, but it can be a collection of stories that help people understand what they might want to do or might not want to do. And it helps in using narrative, like what happened when, who are these people, what did they achieve, can often provide helpful models in ways that are, I think, much more accessible um, than sort of disciplines or or modes where you need to understand the deep theory behind things. Um, I think that when I'm trying to write history, having characters who provide a kind of hook or who who are readily understandable or, or who are sympathetic or who are not sympathetic um, to interest people is a really important way of, of communicating. I think in terms of teaching, I actually would always rather have students try to hook their own stories to the things they're learning. Like it's less me sort of giving information and a lot of asking questions to get people to kind of um, think about how the histories they hear about are relevant to uh, issues on the ground. Um, Researching Well, I think that nothing beats oral history research. I really do. I think it I think from in terms of accessibility, I think that you know, and especially if you can play the oral histories themselves and actually hearing people in their own words without me sort of translating uh, what they have to say. People who've been doing this work for years really know how to connect uh, their projects with kind of regular people who may or may not already know what they've been up to so I do think that oral history adds a lot of color and it, it makes history relatable to people um, in a really important way.
1: That's really gorgeous. And you started the answer to your question with, I love history because, which is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just try to do that at every <laughs> So I was also really moved by your note on methodology at the end of Stirrings. And it's clear that you honor the sacred work of storytelling and acknowledge how much care and intentionality should go into nurturing the relationships that make the work possible in the first place. So will you tell us more about what you call deep acquaintance?
0: Yeah. So I think this is a word that I, this is a term that I, I am using for experience that many people have. So when you do oral histories, particularly over months or, or years, you I began to, I guess I should just speak from the first person, but I Mm -hmm. came to know things about them that I wouldn't have known if we had just sat down for two hours. I I became kind of deeply acquainted with not only the stories that people had to share, but just what they were like as people, how they lived their life, how they, you know, what kind of friends they had, what their family life was like, what their home looked like, what their, what music they listened to, how they cooked food for themselves and their friends. Like I, I kind of became, um, unclear at times about how to tell the difference between what I was learning from an interview and what I was sort of just absorbing over the course of knowing them. And that kind of, I think productive confusion is what I call deep acquaintance. And, you know, a lot of the time, and this is not going to be news to anyone who does interviews, but as soon as you close the recorder or the, the, the microphone and you stop recording, uh, that's a lot of the time when real stories come out. And there's always a tension about what you can use or can't use off the record. But the thing about deep acquaintance is that you're building trust. You're getting to know your narrators and they're getting to know you so that they reveal themselves to you, I think, in, in different ways when they feel like you're real to them. And, you know, it's one of the great luxuries of doing a first project, I think, in grad school, especially if you have, you know, the ability to to focus mostly on research and not have to be teaching all the time, is that you really have a luxury of time. That's really not always possible uh, for, for most people writing histories. And I guess because I was trying to write the sort of internal about the internal politics of grassroots organizing, I really did need to know what these people were like as people. I really did need to understand not only what they did, but how they felt about their work, um, what meaning their work held for them. So this mode of this methodology was, was really helpful for the kinds of questions I was asking.
1: Well, so much gratitude to you for putting all that time and energy and care into those relationships. It really comes through in the book. Um, so while I hope you're getting a chance to revel in the great achievement of getting your first book out into the world and congrats again, do you have any projects on deck that we can be on the lookout for?
0: Uh, my next project is, a kind of life study of the Firestone sisters. So Shulamith Firestone, who was a important feminist of second wave, uh, most well known for her book, The Dialectic of Sex. She also has two sisters, one Leah, who is a therapist, and Tirza, who is a therapist and a rabbi. And I'm kind of looking at their lives as a way of asking questions about the relationship between spirituality, psychotherapy, and radical politics in the lives of mostly Jewish baby boomer women, uh, American women. And I'm hoping to use oral histories and to kind of read all of their written work. And to do some other interviews, kind of synthesize uh, those questions.: That's I'm, I'm very good. early um, on in this project. I have, not, <laughs> I have not gotten very far. I'm just kind of doing reading. I don't have any training in Jewish history. Uh, so' well, sounds I have a lot like of to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much, Lana, for talking with me today. Your book is so amazing, and I just want to end on, last but not least, the most important question of all, what's for dinner?
0: <laughs> well we're supposed to go to a friends for dinner i don't i don't know what they're gonna make us but they're good cooks and we're, we're gonna bring uh probably some some dessert and some wine i guess cookies and, and ice cream
1: <laughs> <laughs> We'll keep us posted good job not coming in empty-handed oh never well, thank you again <laughs>